only three things that matter in building a freelance business, which includes, of course, getting clients. The first is that it's not about you. It's about your clients' problems. So you need to know what they are. The second is it's not about what you do. It is what you do in the context of your clients' problems. Because again, you are an entrepreneur who provides solutions. So that means you need to explain how you help. And the third is that you have to be easy to work with. And I define that as every single step in the process, all your client should have to do is say yes. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Koshovsky, and welcome to episode 152 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Stefan Palios, a freelance writer, coach, and author of the best-selling book, The 50 Laws of Freelancing. During this conversation, Stefan and I did a deep dive on all things freelancing and how to build a profitable and sustainable freelance business. Stefan shared his three most important pillars of freelancing, how to get your first client and develop a never-ending stream of inbound leads so you never have to hunt for your next client. If you're a freelancer or planning on starting a freelance business, this interview is mandatory listening. But before we jump into this interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, which just like this episode has been called mandatory for digital nomads and remote workers by other subscribers. Every Monday morning, I send out a short and fun email covering all the most important news from the areas of remote work, online business, the digital nomad lifestyle, and much more. If you consider yourself a digital nomad or want to one day be one, head over to thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider and subscribe. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media with me or someone you think might enjoy it. Uh, tag me on Twitter at Mitkoka or at Instagram at the same uh, at the same tag at the same username at Mitkoka, and I will share your post. But all right, you guys. Without further ado, let's dive into this fantastic conversation about all things freelance with the one and only Stefan Palios. All right, Stefan, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How's your day going? Uh, my day is going really well. I'm actually uh, headed out to Detroit where uh, my parents-in-law live in, and, you know, after we, we wrap up this this podcast. So I'm like mid-packing, you know, kind of thing. And I'm, you know, all my stuff is scattered. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a good day otherwise. I, I wanted to start off to ask you... Um, I heard that you bought a a chateau. I know that you wanted to buy a chateau in Europe and that you ended up buying want, something yeah. in Canada. Are, how is that going? Are you there right now? What what happened with that? I am. I am. I'm uh, I'm so I unfortunately can't call it a chateau cuz chateau is the French word for castle and this is not a castle. But it is a seven bedroom Victorian house. I I called it a mansion on the internet and people got very upset with me and said that, you know, technically it's not a mansion because you can get these enormous houses anyway. Yes. Um, my partner and I, we were renting a one bedroom apartment in downtown Toronto. We're both Canadian. We were living in Toronto and you know, we enjoyed the city life, but we we're kind of like, maybe we should think about leaving. And then pandemic happened and we're like, oh, we don't want this anymore. Uh, so we started looking and we found this beautiful place in Nova Scotia outside of Halifax in a small town, but the town has, you know, restaurants, pubs, the hospitals here in case we need it. And the house is seven bedrooms. And we're like, oh, let's buy that, renovate it and see if we can open a digital nomad B&B. And that was a year ago. So we are, are now really close as we're recording this, you know, we're taking pictures in the house like later tonight. So you're going to Detroit. I'm taking pictures of guest rooms in my house and the new co-working space that I built inside the house. So it's going very well. But when I tally up the costs of reno, I'm just like, Oh God, th this is, this is where I choose to spend my money, I guess. So hold on, because we we started, we want to do this conversation first because we're going to talk all about freelancing, which I'm very, very yes. excited to talk to you about. But you're now talking about having a digital nomad co-working space and, and B&B, and it, 
you know, I think a lot of people in this crowd are going to be very excited about this. So, so give us the pitch. What is, sure. what is the vision? Why should a digital nomad who is listening to this come to your B&B in Halifax? Well, listen, the house is beautiful. So it, it, the, the part that we really like about it is it's actually outside of Halifax. It's in the town of Windsor, which is a super walkable town. That was something we loved about the city and we did not want to give up. So we're in this town that has this fun energy, but you also are just surrounded by these enormous Victorian houses. And you can you know walk to the cafe or work in our house because we have fiber internet, which doesn't really happen in many small towns. Um, but the other part is we're a 10 minute drive to wine country in the summer and a ski hill in the winter. So kind of whatever you want, like if you haven't been to Nova Scotia, it is beautiful. Everywhere you drive is just like, oh, there's a beautiful forest or a mountain range. Well, not tall mountains, small ones or a lake or a river. It's just the natural beauty here is stunning. So for us thinking about digital nomads was how can you have a really comfortable home experience and feel like this is your home in in Windsor, uh, but have all the amenities you want, have access to a pub that makes really, really good beer locally. Like there's beer made down the street. A gin distillery just opened. A rum distillery is opening. Like it's a cool community to be in. So that that's a bit of the pitch. It's you get a really comfortable room that is designed. We have one that we call the Parisian suite and it's designed like you're in Paris. We have the Art Deco suite, which is this deep, rich blue. And it's designed like you're in New York in the 20s and 30s. But then you have a modern co-working space and a parlor and a library and, you know, all that jazz uh, that, that makes a house we like to think fancy and fun. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Okay. So I have to ask you one more follow-up question on this because I, I mean, I, this is this, I don't know if this says how bad my Canadian geography is, but this is when you say Nova Scotia, I I think East coast area, but you You are right. This is not the city of Windsor, right? This is a town. No, no. The the city of Windsor in Ontario near Detroit. Uh, Right. right. I was like, am I visiting, am I visiting you this weekend? Is this what's happening? That would have been fun. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, we, we actually used to live near you, j- just close to Detroit, well, cl- a few hours away. Uh, but no, we are on the Bay of Fundy on our side. And then if you go to Halifax, that's right on the Atlantic Ocean. It is the it. easternmost city in North America. So it's like above and to the right of Maine. Got it. Okay. That's what I thought. But you said Windsor and I was like, wow, is like my Canadian geography just like very no, American? No, no. There, like but... there are at least two Windsors in Canada. This okay. is, this isn't your fault. This is colonialism. <laughs> okay. So uh, winding back a little bit, I, I yes. you know, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, the, you know, what you're doing with the co-working space there and the BNB. I think that's really exciting. I think that's really smart as well. Because it, everyone is looking for a new place to go work, a new place to go hang out. So I think that's really exciting. But I want to kind of circle back to a little bit earlier on in, in your background. Mm-hmm. Because I I read, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that you uh, studied socioeconomics in college. And that you know you I worked in this, in this field. And what I'm very curious about, I'm always curious about guests who come on here and have gone into entrepreneurship or, or freelancing uh, and have... A, a more established background that maybe other people don't have. And what I'm curious about is when you were going into freelancing, was there something from your background and your studies in socioeconomics that going into freelancing, you thought, Oh, that was really nice to have. Like, I I'm very glad that I learned this in that background that, you know, maybe others that don't have that background uh, should Mm -hmm. know about. So I joke that I have a cocktail napkin degree. Uh, Like it's, it's, it feels fake sometimes. Like literally my degree is one big paragraph of Latin. So my partner actually jokes that it's not real, that that I just embossed it myself and put some Latin words on a paper. Um, but, but jokes aside, studying uh, economic sociology and socioeconomics, the key question of my studies was what motivates people in business? So why do people do the things that they do in business? And are there trends that we can learn from that? Now, You know, I probably learned a couple specific tidbits that helped me, but that frame of thinking is what helped me the most when I started to go into entrepreneurship, Uh, because I started thinking 
how can, how are people motivated? And then can I make a product? So that my first company, I, I tried and failed to build a technology platform that, uh, that was, I was working on building an algorithm to assess talent and it, it just it failed for a variety of reasons. Just, uh, I wasn't the right person to found it, all that jazz. But my second business being my freelancing business, I knew that I could write because I actually learned how to write as part of my degree, which I think is probably the best hard skill because um, I had to write papers every single week for years. So you just get good at writing at a decent clip. And so I was like, okay, I have a hard skill of writing, but to make a business out of it, I need to write what people need written. I can't I can't simply create because even if you're going to, even if I was going to go down the route of becoming a novelist, I would need to write something that gripped a reader and enticed them to spend money on that book or on that story. So I was, the, the skill there is thinking, okay, what motivates people? And I could actually then turn that to my clients and say, what are you trying to get people to do? And then what do you believe motivates them? Or do you have SEO data to, to imply what motivates them because they're asking the question on Google? Or do you have customer research where they've told you what they're looking for? And then how can I use my skill of writing to create content that is either going to answer a specific question, pose a specific question, offer a new way of thinking. And down that line, I started to get to some of my favorite questions that I ask my clients. I can, I can dive into that. But the answer to your first question there is the hard skill I got from my studies was learn how to write. The mm -hmm. softer skill was this mindset of ask about motivations because that's how you can create valuable things. Yeah, I, I think learning how to write and and especially write in a very uh, communicative and engaging way is such a powerful skill. And it's almost like a building block of anything you want to do, right? Like even if you don't mm -hmm. want to be a copywriter, uh, you know, freelance your copywriting skills, whatever you do online, you're going to have to communicate that written most likely. Uh, yeah, it starts very with words. Yeah, you need to have that. You need to have that ability. I... I studied biotechnology in college and I actually had to unlearn the writing style that was taught to me for, for science papers because it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know, who, like, it's just not written for humans, right? It, 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 yeah. it does not flow. It's like, let's make this more difficult for people to read, right? Um, so I definitely agree with you that that writing is a really great basic skill to learn. I'm curious, were there any skills that you spent time learning that in retrospect were a waste of time that maybe others listening to this can skip and not worry about? So I'm tempted to say no, only because everything I learned forced me to think about learning, which helped me learn the things I needed to learn. It, it's, it's kind of tautological where you learn because you learn, but th that actually is a program. I was lucky enough in school. Um, my mom's a teacher and she would always explain things to us in this way where we'd come home and be like, why do we have to do this? This isn't going to help me in life. And she would use this concept of learning in spite of what you're taught. So even if you don't care about the skill you are learning, you are uh, priming your brain to learn. And even if you don't like how something is taught, you are priming your brain to digest information anyway. Now, as you get older and become a more autonomous adult, you can avoid the things you don't like, but those little snippets make everything else a little easier. So, you know, in my case, I never properly learned how to code, but I did a little bit. And I think at one point I would have answered your question by saying, I didn't need to learn how to code. If you want to be a freelancer, you can skip that. And honestly, that might even be more true now with the no code movement, because I'm, I'm talking about, mm -hmm. you know, eight or nine years ago, I took a little mini course. But I, I hesitate to say, skip the coding. But not even just because coding is valuable, if you want to build technology, of course, but trying to learn the absolute rigidity of computer functionality where a period in the wrong spot can mess up the entire thing. It's interesting. And it's, it provides a different perspective for your brain. So when I'm talking to a client who is having a heck of a time understanding diverse concepts and, uh, and kind of bringing things down to reality because their head is up in strategy vision mode, 
I sometimes can rely on that and say, wait, how can I present this in such a rigid way that it forces them to answer me? And that's actually a tactic that I use now with my clients where I say, I'm going to say something and you either have to agree with it or correct me. And Mm. so I'll say, you know, if I understand correctly, your goal is to achieve this. Are you agreeing or are you going to correct me? And so that helps. That's helped immensely when I need to bring something down to reality so that I can actually execute because if I can't execute, I don't get paid. Uh, so that's why I hesitate to say I'm, I value learning in spite of what I'm taught, even though some of those skills I don't use on a regular basis, I wouldn't necessarily say they weren't valuable. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting because when you started answering that question, I was going to rephrase it as what have you learned that has been the least leverage to you, right? In in, in your career. Mm-hmm. And code is the thing that I would say would actually be the mo one of the highest leverage things that you can learn because I mean, I know it sounds like just as much coding as you do, but it's I think it's very important the same way that, you know, you and I are I'm assuming a pretty similar age have some sort of internet literacy, right? Where we can use the internet. Uh, Other people don't. And I think in the future, you're going to have to have some sort of internal understanding of how computers work and communicate as more and more things become digital, having that almost like knowing that language, right? The same way that if you go to France and you know French, you're going to have a much better, much easier time of, of working in France if you want to work with computers, you're going to have a much easier time working with them uh, if if you know their language. Absolutely. I want to shift over to talking a little bit about getting freelance clients. And, and the reason why I want to do that is I think it's sort of um, a first domino question that we need to answer for anybody who's listening here. Because I've found that even though to people like yourself who are experienced freelancers, getting clients is sort of like, it's it's what you do, right? But yes. for people who are just getting started, that first client, even if it's not the most money, can sometimes be the most important because it yep. shows them that it's real, that it's something that they can do. It proves them that this is realistic. So I want to ask you, how can somebody who's listening to this right now get their first client, even if they don't have any experience, maybe they don't have any trust in that industry, perhaps they have no uh, ability to say, hey, here's what I can do, here's what my work looks like without doing it for free, right? Because uh, that's yeah. something that a lot of people push back on. So what would be your advice to that person? Okay, so I can literally give a checklist. Do you want the checklist? Give us the checklist. Checklists All are right. great. So the checklist starts with mindset. You've got to realize you are not a self-employed worker looking for work. You are an entrepreneur. And as such, you are a solution provider for your clients. Now that that has a key thing to it because of step two, which I call the only three things that matter in building a freelance business, which includes, of course, getting clients. The first is that it's not about you. It's about your client's problems. So you need to know what they are. The second is it's not about what you do. It is what you do in the context of your client's problems. Because again, you are an entrepreneur who provides solutions. So that means you need to explain how you help. And the third is that you have to be easy to work with. And I define that as every single step in the process, all your client should have to do is say yes. So we're, we're, we're there first. We got the mindset cor- correction and then the only three things that matter. From a very practical perspective, you can, you can apply the rest of my knowledge with, with those little frameworks. For example, your website should communicate who you are, what you do, and for whom, and have an easy way to get in touch with you so that a client who might be looking for your services has a place to find you. That same information should be consistent everywhere that you live on the internet so that anytime you are discovered, people know what you do. That statement, I call it a one-liner, needs to be both easy to remember and easy to repeat. And in order to do that, it must only be good enough. I see this so often with new freelancers. They are way too specific. They want to tell you that they are capable of doing everything. And I understand why you do that. Because you want to cast your net as wide as possible. Leverage all your skills. I get it, truly. But the problem with that is you want to generate what I call market curiosity. 
which is in opposition to intellectual curiosity. Intellectual curiosity is when someone is trying to figure out who the F you are because they don't understand. They want to put you in a box so that their brain doesn't explode. Market curiosity is when someone is asking you questions because they want to identify how you can help them. So we have mindset. You're an entrepreneur. We have the things that matter, which means that you need to focus on your clients. You then need to communicate who you are across all your online properties consistently. How you communicate that needs to be easy to remember and easy to repeat, which means only good enough. So I'm a freelance writer, not I'm a freelance writer, editor, strategist, person thingy. Um, allow them to come to you. And then when it comes to actually finding that first client, you've got to go where they exist already online and join conversations. So that could be Twitter. Um, I teach a lot on how to find clients on Twitter. I even launched a mini course on it on Udemy. Um, and that is the principle of leveraging some existing tools, finding those people, following them and engaging with what they post so that you can look for a problem. Because the real key, if you're a solution provider, then you need problems to solve. So when you're reaching out to people, whether that's cold or responding to inbound, or if someone says, you know, I want to help you get a client, how can I help you? It's the problems that you are able to solve rather than what you do. So tangibly, let's say you're a new freelancer and you say, okay, how can I ask, like, I'm a writer. How can I get freelance writing clients. The wrong way to ask is to say, hey, Stefan, I'm a freelance writer. If you know anyone, can you make an introduction? Because that fundamentally is asking me for a favor. You're asking me to remember that you are a writer, to think about my network or think about you live in conversation with people and then bring you up as a writer and promote you to these people and convince them to talk to you. You're asking me to spend my social capital on you, but you can do a simple tweak. And instead of saying, hey, Stefan, do you know anyone for me? You say, hey, Stefan, I am a freelance writer. If you know anyone that needs help with content, I'd be happy to chat with them and see if I'm the right person to help. And instantly that pivots the whole thing. It's about someone else's problems. If someone has a challenge that content can solve, then you are a good person to chat with. And the, there are two keys there. That's the first one. The second is that you've made an offer to help. You've offered to take an initial phone call to see if you are a fit, as opposed to assuming you're a fit simply because you have a skill. Because again, it's not about you. It's about their problems. But the cool part about that ask, if you had asked me to do that, I gain social capital by referring people to you. Because suddenly when my friend is like, crap, I need a blog then I can actually bring you up as a solution versus remembering to bring you up and promo you and use my social capital to convince my friend to talk to you. They're saying they have a problem and I'm going, dude, I can solve your problem. Let me make an introduction. And that helps me because if you're skilled and you deliver, you make money, you get a client from me. I look fantastic because I just solved my buddy's problem. They get their problem solved. It's a triple win. So that's at, at a very high level, I'll stop the ramble, but that's how that mindset, being an entrepreneur, thinking about your client's problems, being consistent about who you are, looking for those problems, and then communicating what you do as, hey, this is what I do that I think might help you. Can we talk about it to see if I'm the right fit? Rather than saying, hey, I do this, that's what you need, hire me. Yeah, I I love that I uh that refer that reframe that you have of how to ask for that because one of the things that when I work with people or they're like asking me how to find clients they struggle with is they don't want to lead with an ask right they they understand that in the relationship they're coming in and immediately like asking for something and wanting something and they know they need to lead with value but they don't mm -hmm. understand how to do that uh in 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 that context and so I think that that's really, really helpful. One of the things that I'm curious to hear your feedback on this, one sure. of the ways that I teach people to uh, frame what they do 
is I give them the formula, I help X achieve Y, right? Where X is your your avatar, like who you want to work with, and Y is the problem that, that you're trying to solve, right? So how would you, is there any tweak that you would put to that? So I, I like that framing. Um, where, where I tend to switch a little bit is if you are capable of a lot of things. So if you have a broad base of skills that could be applied in different ways, then stating an outcome can actually be limiting because then a client goes, well, I don't, I don't need that. So thank you. I'll keep you in mind. Now, if you are a performance person, let's say you're a performance ads freelancer, you're going to run Facebook ads for people. Yeah. People are only coming to Facebook ads for one reason, growth of some sort, more sales, more followers, whatever. But if you're a, a, you know, a writer or an HR consultant or a VA that does a lot of different things, I hesitate to say, pick an outcome, drill on that, and instead be really specific about the type of person you help. So do you help early stage businesses, early stage startups? You know, I'm a VA that helps early stage startups with organization. So it's like an outcome, but it isn't so specific that someone says, well, I don't need what you offer. So thanks anyway. So that, that's my thoughts on that. The, the outcome value is great if what you do is very linear in terms of the outcome people are seeking. But if you have a, a slightly broader base skill, then you may want to focus more on the type of person you help because they may need different outcomes. Um, and that's not to say that one is more valuable than the other. They're both completely equal in terms of building a freelance business, but it's just being aware of which slot you fill. Yeah, I feel like one of like one of the things that uh, for me, whenever I introduce that way, like my goal is for the other person to say, hmm, that's interesting. T tell me more, right? Because then they're giving the permission to then go down the road of like, well, I do this and I do this and I do that kind of thing. So so like yeah. my hope is and I totally agree with you. And, it, it, and that's really hard for people, right? Especially people who feel like they're multi-talented is how do I slot myself? Uh, how do I define what I do in the in in this one single way? Yeah. That can be really really hard. And I find people, even if they want to slot themselves, they kind of will will expand every single time to to tell yeah. more about what they do. Well, I like that that what you just described there because that's what I would call market curiosity. You want to say something just enough for them to go tell me more. Um, if you have that outcome, that's super clear. You know, I run Facebook ads. I help people make more money. That's great. But if you can, if you don't quite have that, or you do have the broad base, getting specific on the type of person can produce the same result. Because then they go, wait, how do you help that type of person? Or if they're not that type of person, but they feel they might need your service, they need writing, they need a VA going, is it only that type of person? And that's, that's how market curiosity can start. Because gives you permission. I, I love the use of permission. I use consent all the time when I teach sales. Consent is so important in sales to then communicate a little more and say, well, funny that you ask, you know, as a writer, I write case studies, I write social copy, I write this, like, tell me about yourself. And again, pivoting it all back to it's about your problems as a potential client and simply how what I do helps you solve your problems or get to your goals. Mm. We're, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but I feel like this is a good segue into something else that I want to talk to you about, which is like managing multiple um, services or, or businesses that you run, because I think that's a very common thing in today's online business world where oh, you, you do multiple it. things, right? Like you have a, a, a course and, and you have coaching and you work with clients and now you have a BNB. And I feel like this happens a lot with, with people where they have, um, maybe they start as freelancers and they have a mm -hmm. service, but then they develop something that is more product based. And then they find themselves in a place where they're kind of having to balance both. How do you do that? How do you explain to people, how do you do that A, in terms of like time and energy output, but then also how do you do that when communicating what you do without when someone asks you, what do you do? And you, you know, opening up uh, an encyclopedia book of things that you do and listing out all of that to them. So I'm curious, how, how do you manage those yeah. two aspects of that? Honestly, I love that you asked this because I was facing this for a long time. So I was pure content services. So, so I, and even then I used to be purely blog writing. 
that when I very first started, that was the thing. And then I wedged myself in and I kind of expanded up to what I call content services. But then I launched my first course, um, it, which included some coaching about a year and a half ago, just over a year ago. And suddenly it was like, well, that's not content services anymore. So what on God's green earth do I do? And how can I have that good enough one-liner that gets people thinking? Um, and the the answer that I came up with after an embarrassingly long time thinking about this is to build my own next level. So I created an umbrella that, that encompasses both. So for example, I write content for my clients. I do content strategy uh, and, and just broad business advisory. So that's kind of one line of business. And that's the, the freelance services. This other line of business is I have a course, a, a workshop course on Udemy on getting freelance clients on Twitter. So it's a sales course. I have my larger growth blueprint, which is this big six week, like transform your freelance business, grow your revenues, blah, blah, blah. And on the surface, those two are not anywhere near the same. They, they don't even feel like they're in a Venn diagram. So frankly, I kind of created my own, or rather, I didn't invent this term, just for the record, I don't feel that way. But I started describing my work as sales enablement, because in both cases, I do help businesses grow. With content, I'm doing content marketing, so case studies, blogs, and that's in service of revenue. With the courses, I'm directly training you on how to sell more and make more money. That's also sales enablement. So I created my own umbrella. And that actually created an interesting challenge because those are two different audiences. I help startups with content and freelancers with sales. So then it became a bit complicated in terms of how do I simply communicate my audience, who I help. And I ended up making two decisions. One is that over the years, I focused really heavily on building referral networks for my freelance services business. So I am luckily in a position where I don't have to do much marketing of myself as a freelancer to get freelance clients. That's it. It's an interesting thing. So I've defaulted to just describing myself a little bit more as someone who helps freelancers grow their business. You know, I grew my own business to multi six figures. Now I help other freelancers do the same. And I've helped over a thousand students and people have earned over a million in revenue. Like that's kind of where, how I talk about myself now, if we were to just meet off the street and you ask what I do. Um, but I also thought about a bigger vision for my company. So uh, uh, again, with that notion that as a freelancer, we are business owners. Just because I happen to do everything in that business right now doesn't mean it's not a business. And I, I created a broader vision of helping entrepreneurs grow and succeed on their terms. So whether I'm writing content for you, teaching you to sell, coaching you on mindset or something different entirely, it's all in service of supporting entrepreneurs because at the end of the day, freelancers are entrepreneurs, startup founders are entrepreneurs. So that's the common ground. So that was a little bit of a ramble, but the, the key advice is when you start getting into multiple things, Find the common thread, because if you have passion for both, there has to be a common thread because mm -hmm. it wouldn't exist within you if you didn't have something. So keep searching for that common thread and don't be afraid to experiment. I started using the term sales enablement because I thought that it worked and in my head it did. But I realized that I was starting to get a lot of intellectual curiosity. People were like, who are you? How do I how do I put you in a box in my head so my head doesn't explode? But when I shifted to say, I help entrepreneurs grow, then I started getting a little bit of market curiosity of like, oh, how? Well, sales training, content, a few other things. You know, How are you doing? Tell me about your problems. And then I get to put it back on them. So that would be the tip there. Can you, because can you just define uh, again and, and create a little bit more clarity around what is market curiosity? Because yes. to me, both of those examples that you mentioned just now seem like market curiosity. So clearly, I'm, I'm not understanding the difference. Like, what to you would be a, a, a specific example of market curiosity? Yeah. So, market curiosity is any response where someone is trying to figure out if you can help them versus trying to figure out something about you, being polite. So, mm -hmm. intellectual curiosity would be something like, you tell me that you run this podcast and I go, oh, that's lovely. You know, like 
tell me a little bit more about the podcast just to keep the conversation going. We met at a networking event um, or a question more like, great, you know, how, how is it distributing a podcast these days? Like it's about you versus market curiosity would be more like interesting. I listen to, you know, the, this other podcast on remote work. Um, do you, what's your focus? Their focus is this. What's yours? Or as a potential guest saying, you know, that that's awesome that you run that podcast. Do you take guests on your podcast mm. or do you take sponsorships on your podcast where it's the same thing? I'm asking you a question about yourself, but the intent is different. If it, the intent of intellectual curiosity is to get you to talk about yourself so that I understand you. The intent of market curiosity is to get you to answer specific questions so that I can apply it to my context. It's a mm -hmm. subtle difference. Um, and it took me a long time to grasp that concept. Genuinely took me about three years of running my business to realize that that's the difference. Um, the other thing, if you do happen to talk to people in person as we get back into that is uh, completely anecdotally, feel free to tell me this is wrong in your own experience. People lean back when they're going to ask you intellectual questions and lean forward when they're asking you market questions. Mm, that's interesting. Totally non-scientific. Um, maybe there is a scientific base for it, but I have noticed when it's intellectual curiosity, people kind of go like, oh, and you can see on the camera, I'm leaning back versus intellectual. It's like, or sorry, versus market curiosity. It's like leaning forward, leaning into the conversation. Completely anecdotal. You can feel free to edit that out if you want to. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. That, that's actually very helpful because uh, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody referred to, um, we were just discussing this with my wife a few weeks ago about how watching movies is, is lean back relaxation. It's a lean back activity while playing video games. It's a lean forward activity. And it was something that Absolutely. like they explained to me. I was like, Oh, that's actually, I, I totally lean forward when I'm, you know, playing video games. Uh, but circling back to, to what we were talking about before there about, um, managing different projects, you know, yeah. uh, what about energy? Because I know this is something that like I personally struggle with, right? Where I almost feel like there's, if I have clients that I'm working with, I almost feel guilty in some way working on something that isn't their client work. So, and I know this is going to be different for, for different people, depending on how they work and, and everything like that. So I'm just kind of curious about your personal, uh, way system around managing your energy and what you work on in terms of clients yeah. versus your own business. So I guide my energy from money and my word. Um, so I, I'll prioritize the things that make me money. You have to as an entrepreneur. But then if I've given my word to something, whether that is a client or whether that is to an internal deadline to myself, I want to respect it. Um, the third factor is making sure that I don't focus so much on the urgent that I forget the important. So the important factors are things like um, keeping my admin in, in check, you're filing my expenses so that I can get a tax return later on, all those things that do matter and are tangible, but uh, you know maybe don't come in day to day. So those, those are probably, I guess, my three. Um, what, what's going to make me money? What's going to make sure that I keep my word because my integrity is really important to me? And as a service provider, my reputation is what I trade on. If people start talking about how I don't deliver anymore, well, there goes my business. And then the third is making sure that I'm doing the important stuff. And on a very practical level, I do this every business day. I send myself an email um, with four categories, business admin, uh, growth, revenue tasks, and personal tasks. Um, and every day I put in the priorities that I need to accomplish that day in order to inch my business forward. Um, I like thinking on that really daily level, because if you don't get everything done, you can do it the next day. Like there's always a chance to get back on the bandwagon. And if you wanted to zoom it out, you could even do your weekly email with your key priorities for the week and even for the month and even for the quarter, if you want to do that level of planning. Um, but those four categories encompass 100% of what a business needs to do. Um, and I like the daily element because depending on my word and things that make money, there's more time to do your growth or your admin some days. Because, you know, the day after you just submitted a big project to your client, you're likely not going to have another big project that's urgently due. So you can do a little more growth that day. 
or a day that you have a lot of personal tasks, you accept that as a reality because as independent entrepreneurs, we are our businesses as much as we'd like to not be some days. So your personal tasks matter a lot. So that that's how I think about it when it comes to managing energy. Um, the other part too, is I'm a firm believer in the principle that you have to give everything you have every day, which means if you have a lot to give, do it. And if you don't have a lot to give, don't. Give what you can versus forcing yourself over it, knowing that you're going to average out in the long run because the days that you have more, you give more. The days that you have less, you give less. And it just allows a bit of a smoothing without feeling bad on those days that you give less because you know that you gave more when you could. Mm. I'm curious about, uh, I love that, by the way. I have never heard that before about, you know, when you have something to give, give it all. And then when you don't, like, don't right don't, i've, I've yeah. never i've i've never heard that before that's very interesting but i'm curious you mentioned kind of in passing a little bit earlier that your entire freelancing business is now essentially referrals and that's interesting because most people that i'm trying to think of an example in which this isn't the case that i'm struggling to at the moment where someone has a successful sustainable long-running freelancing business they've almost always figured that out it's almost like a linchpin event where yes. they somehow cross this this threshold into where a majority of their work comes from referrals is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that is critically important to enabling that um I'll only highlight the two things that I've already said. One is the clarity of you communicating what you do. Because yeah, my I might have a great network that refers me now, but I didn't to start. I, I started this by going to events, meeting a whole bunch of people, and someone took a chance on me. Um, but what happens, regardless of if you have a strong network or not, they're going to look you up. So if you're not consistently communicating what's going on, then you're, they will flake out. And that's why it's so important to be really clear. What do you do? Who do you do it for? And an easy way to get in touch with you. So the majority of my business is inbound, but I still get people submitting my form on my website or shooting me a DM on Twitter or shooting me a DM on LinkedIn saying, check out your profile. I'm in need of this. You sound like you might be a good fit to which I can happily respond. I think I might be as well. Let's book a call about it. Here you go. Here's my calendar. Um, that's really important. So it's not just referral, because again, you want your potential clients to only have to say yes. So be really clear about what you do. The website thing is number one. The second is again, that how you ask for it. If you ask for referrals as an offer of help, you will get them more and get them more happily than if you just ask for a favor. Um, the other third-ish thing is you do have to deliver. I mean, people are not going to refer you. It's very interesting. You might actually retain your clients if you're not that good because you are good enough that they don't want to go through the pain of finding someone else, but they won't refer you unless you are good because they need to be able to confidently say, I'm loving working with mm. Stefan for me or you know this person. So you should too. Um, so the third pillar is you do really have to deliver and it is interesting because a lot of freelancers think that it is kind of binary, where if you're not good, you're fired. And if you're good, you get referrals. The latter is true. If you're very good, you do get referrals. But the, the weird reality is you can be perfectly mediocre and continue to retain your clients for a long time. You won't be able to raise your rates, but you can retain the client because they are just too tired to go find another person. Uh, so you, I don't recommend being in that situation, but it is something to know strategically if you are particularly, for example, having a really bad time of it and need to, to scale down a bit, you can still retain a lot of your clients with a slight decrease in work quality as long as it eventually comes back up. Mm. When do you know that you are ready to go full-time on your own as a freelancer because I'm somebody who, like, I'm a big proponent of overlap. There's even a, a great book by that title that talks all about how to transition from a full-time job to being your own boss and, and you know how important that overlap period is. So if there's anyone listening to this that has a full-time job still but is freelancing on the side uh, and yeah. is wondering when it's time to make that jump do you have a, a checklist or are there certain things that you think about to know that that person is ready to to go off of full yeah. time on their own? 
like, so I, I like this question because I actually started my business part-time as well. I'm a big advocate of that um, because it's it's great financial security. There's no point putting yourself in an enormous financial risk if you don't have to. Now, I will say I went full-time freelancing because I got laid off. Um, I was working in the crypto space and crypto winter hit and uh, and that there went my salary. Are you having um, flashbacks right now to, to that period of time? Maybe, maybe a little <laughs> bit. Um, but the, I had genuinely been planning to do it anyway. So I was laid off in January, but I had been planning to go by April. Um, and the reason that I had picked that timeline was that I was going to have four months of, of, uh, survival savings in the bank account. Um, and the, that that was enough for me where I was kind of like, I can suffer and then go get another job if I need to, if this really doesn't work out. Uh, but the other part... I call that, by the way, I call that your minimum viable income. It's like, what is your yes. ramen budget? Like, what is Absolutely. the... What's going to make sure that you don't get you kicked yeah. out of your apartment? Um, but then... I boil down everything. So when it comes to, you know, when do I go full time? It's part about your confidence. It's part about your business trajectory. It's part going to be your funnel. It's it's part uh, going to be, you know, what's coming in the door? Do you have collaborations? Is your brand, do you feel your brand strong enough? Have you gotten a referral, which indicates that your work quality is high enough? All those things matter. But I like to distill that down to the moment when you are okay turning down a bad fit client. Because that means you have gained enough confidence to know where you are a fit. It means that you have the confidence to say no to money, which is a tough thing to do. And even when, especially when you're not even earning the amount that you want to yet, but you're still saying no to the wrong money. Um, and it also means that you know how to communicate what you do, because in order to turn someone down, you have to tell them. And usually that's a function of saying, I do this, you want that. Unfortunately, we're not a fit. So that if I were to distill it all down to one moment, how do you really know when you're ready? It's the moment that you were able to turn down a bad fit client because of what that mm. says about who you are as an entrepreneur, how you're doing in your business and the the chance of success in the future. Yeah, that makes me think about, um, I have a friend who was uh, in the Israeli special forces before he became an entrepreneur. And one of the things that he taught me was this concept of red line events and the idea being that when you're in a stressful situation, right, you're, if they're on a mission and it's something is happening, you tend to kind of push that line at which you should retreat or you should go back because you're in that situation. And what they're taught to do is before they ever embark on the mission, they, with a clear head, decide what their red line events are. And the rules are that if those red line events, you know, whether it's one, two or three of them happen, you act, right? You don't make the decision of what to do at that point. You, you've you already created the plan. And so I yep. do think there is a little bit in here in terms of like, you know, golden handcuffs where you're like, well, I'm going to work one more month and or two more months it's or maybe so I'm going to wait for the next client. And I think that there's a lesson there in terms of if you're starting to even have that question, maybe create yeah. those red line events for yourself. And when those happen, you know what the action is, right? You know what to do. Don't Absolutely. let yourself make that decision there. While you're working full time, hopefully you're semi flush with cash. If you're in a situation where your freelance business is growing, making money, and you've got your full time salary, you're probably time strapped, but you probably have some cash. Um, that might be a perfect time to go buy a course or invest in some coaching um, when you have the cash. And even if you delay it, or even if you don't check, even if you don't sign into that course for a little bit, buy the resource that's going to support you or work with a coach to, to either define those red line moments if you're having trouble or give you the accountability or give you the handholding, whatever you might need. Because frankly, I, I talk to a lot of guys about this in entrepreneurship where they're kind of afraid to say that they want handholding or that they want reassurance. And if if you've listened to this point in the podcast, first of all, thank you. But second, um, it's it really is okay to at least admit that to yourself. If you're concerned about admitting it publicly, that's fine. But go go look into a course, buy a book, think about a coach. If you've realized that you are just sitting there going, I'm probably ready, but I just don't want to. Like something's paralyzing me. Mm -hmm. Then it's okay to go try and solve that problem because entrepreneurship is just the process of solving problems all the time for yourself, for your clients. Um, 
So that, that's kind of my extra two cents on that. When you have the cash, use it in a way that is going to help you solve whatever problem you're facing. And by the way, um, in most jurisdictions in the US and Canada, at least that's a tax deduction. So don't be afraid of that. Yeah, I love that. And it seems like we think of business the same way because I've always said business is just the art of solving problems at scale. So it seems like we have a, a similar mindset there. But yeah. uh, in wrapping up, because I want to be respectful of your time, thank you so much. This has been uh, super, super fun. But I do have one last question here. Mm. You have a, a great book, which was a bestseller called The 50 Laws of Freelancing. And yes. there are 50 laws because I am sure that all 50 of those are very, very important. And I, and I recommend that people go and buy the book. But here for the podcast, because we don't have time to go over all 50 of them, uh, yep. I do want to ask you, if you had to do the 80-20 rule on those mm -hmm. 50 laws, what would be the 20% that you think will have the most leverage, will have the most impact to folks listening? I got I to gotta come back to those only three things that matter. It's about your client's problems. It's about explaining what you do in the context of their problems and being easy to work with. And that will distill down into everything that you could possibly do as an entrepreneur. Um, so I, that that's the 80-20, honestly. And then on top of all that, you are an entrepreneur. Your job is to provide solutions, which means that you need to understand problems. And that's how you zip into those three things. That's awesome. Well, Stefan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was uh, this was awesome. I, I'm sure people are going to love it. Uh, where can they learn? You know, let them know where can they get the book. Where can they get your courses that you've mentioned? Uh, I know that yeah. you that you alluded to having a new Udemy course, uh, all about how to get clients on Twitter, which we didn't even get to yes. talk about. But I think that's an amazing topic because I think Twitter is is a gold mine of, of possible work. So let people oh, know I where love can they it. find that, where can they find those and where Absolutely. can they connect with you online? Absolutely. So that, that course is called how to find freelance clients on Twitter. So it's on Udemy. You can search it and, you know, would love to have you join that course. Over a thousand people have joined it already. It seems to be going pretty well. Um, in general, I am super active on Twitter at Stefan Palios, S-T-E-F-A-N-P-A-L-I-O-S. Um, and I recently launched a new YouTube channel where I'm putting a lot of the insights that I share in my newsletter on Twitter um, into YouTube videos. So if you don't completely tire of hearing my voice and prefer video and audio to written learning, uh, check it out on YouTube. It's uh, just Stefan Palios, business coach for freelancers. Perfect. Well, uh, folks, we're going to have links to all of that in the show notes. So don't feel like you need to remember all of that. Just head on over to the show notes and we'll have that right there for you to just link through right away. And uh, Stefan, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. I had a great time.